0: This is Eve Lazarus and you're listening to Cold Case Canada, the Philip Porter story.
1: Cold Case Canada is an independently produced true crime podcast hosted by Eve Lazarus, a reporter and author based in Vancouver, British Columbia. This episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Forbidden Vancouver Walking Tours. In the late 1960s, Kimberley was
0: a one-company town located in the East Kootenays of British Columbia. The population was around 7,000 people, and most worked in Cominco's iron and fertilizer plants or at the Sullivan Mine. The biggest lead zinc mine in the world at the time. Robin Porter, a Saskatchewan born mining engineer, was the superintendent of Cominco. In July 1969, he was in the process of moving his family to Trail, where he would take over an even more impressive role heading up the multi million dollar Fording Coal Company, a subsidiary of Canadian Pacific Railway and Cominco. On June 26, 1969, Patricia Porter was preparing to take a short flight to Trail to join her husband and look after preparations for their move. Philip, their 16-year-old son, was the youngest of their three kids and he was mentally impaired. Philip would move to Trail with his parents in time to start the school year in September. Patricia planned to meet with a school counsellor the next day. A few days earlier, Philip had put all his spare cash about $38 and change, into his savings account. He was leaving for scout camp in two days' time, and it was a highlight of his year. Philip had already checked in with Scoutmaster Jack Martin several times to make sure the camp was taking place before he moved to trail, and his clothing and equipment was laid out in his room. The porters lived in a large white company house across from McDougall Park in Townsite, a short walk through the forest to the main part of town. Patricia had arranged for their neighbour, Edith Jenkins, to stay with Philip while she was in trail, and Edith would cook for him and make sure he got to the party that was being thrown in his honour that night by his friends, Roy and Sandy Moe. It was the first day of school holidays, and just after one o'clock, Patricia asked Philip to go to the grocery store to pick up some supplies and to collect her airline ticket from the travel agency. Although summer, it was a cold rainy day, and Philip put on his green ski jacket, brown corduroy pants, and black Oxford shoes. The last words he said to his mother were, I won't be too long, I'm coming home to mess around with my friends. He picked up the ticket at the airline office and headed for the super value. Joyce Bell served him and remembers bagging up five pounds of new potatoes, two loaves of bread, and some tomatoes. Next he dropped into the Kaminko head office, where his father worked, and dropped off some mail. The Cominco accountant who knew Philip well watched him head up the trail that would take him home. A school friend and a city of Kimberley Foreman both saw Philip walking up the hill towards his house carrying a large bag of groceries. That was just after 2.30pm. Patricia's flight to trail was cancelled and at 5pm she was surprised that Philip still hadn't returned home for his dinner. She called around to his friends to see if he'd stopped by for a visit though it was out of character for Philip not to call if he was going to be even a little bit late. She phoned the police to report him missing and then called their neighbour and friend George Williams, who offered to go into town and look for him. George asked around at the shops and at 7pm when he couldn't find any sign of Philip, he went to the RCMP and had them put out a missing persons alert on the radio and broadcast a description of Philip. While police were searching for Philip, Patricia and George Williams waited at the house for news. At 10.20 that night, the phone rang and George answered. After a few seconds of silence, a deep male voice asked, Who are you? After George identified himself, the caller asked to speak to Mrs. Porter. Patricia signaled to George to go upstairs and pick up the phone extension and listen in. Your kid is okay, the caller told Patricia. Four times, he slowly repeated the same thing. We want a hundred grand. Patricia told him that they didn't have that kind of money, the equivalent of about $785,000 in today's dollars. The caller continued, $100,000 in $20 bills, no marked bills, except he pronounced $100,000 as $100,000. When she asked if she could speak to her son, the caller said he will be in Vancouver Saturday. She asked him to repeat the instructions, which he did, adding that he wanted the unmarked bills in a canvas bag and if she told police, her son was dead. He'd be in touch with further instructions, he told her. Patricia ignored his threats and contacted the police. She told them that the man sounded drunk or foreign because he spoke so slowly and because of the way he pronounced $1,000 as $1,000. She said he also pronounced her husband's name in a strange way. Police weren't sure if it was a crank call. It had come shortly after a local radio station broadcasted a message from the RCMP about Philip's disappearance, but they worked on the presumption that it was genuine. The search for Philip continued into the next day with volunteers, an RCMP plane, and a tracking dog. Philip was well known around Kimberley. The brown eyed boy was about five foot ten. Slim and had a long, shambling stride that made him look like he was walking uphill all of the time. He always wore a big smile and his brown hair flopped over his left eye. While his speech was slow and he was about three years behind his age group academically, he had common sense and he was dependable with a good sense of direction. He was also extremely reliable and he volunteered at the Anglican Church in Kimberley and he was a member of the Calvinist teen group at the Presbyterian Church. On Forbidden Vancouver's Lost Souls of Gastown walking tour, you'll step inside a world of murder and revenge. There's a retelling of Victorian Gastown's earliest stories with tales of the great fire, smallpox outbreaks and the unsolved murder of John Bray. The experience is led by one of Forbidden Vancouver's cast of professional theatre actors who leads you through the city's oldest back streets and alleyways to a dramatic finale in the heart of Gastown. I took this walking tour and it sure sent a shiver down my spine. Book tickets at ForbiddenVancouver.com and save 15% when you use the code COLDCASE. The search for Philip was one of the largest ground and air searches ever seen in the interior of British Columbia. Police from several local detachments took part, along with a few hundred volunteers on horseback and in planes and cars. Roadblocks were set up at Creston, Fernie, Invermere, and other possible escape routes for the kidnappers. Hotels, motels, homes, Kaminco properties, the Porter property, vacant houses, lakes and sewer pipes, and all known cabins, roads, and trails from Wycliffe to Canal Flats were searched. Just a few days earlier, some teenagers had knocked Philip off his bike and kicked him. Philip told his mother that he didn't know who they were, but she reported the incident to the RCMP. The kids involved were checked and cleared, and they joined the search. Faye Greenaway was born in Kimberley in 1952. She was a year older than Philip. Her father had worked as an electrician at Cominco's fertilizer plant, and when Philip went missing, she helped in the search.
2: In that time, they were probably the richest people in Kimberley. His dad, which you know, was the the big shot of Kaminko, right? And they lived uh, right up, like up on the hill. Of course, you're in a small town. It was about 7,000 people. Just about all the people there were employed by Kaminko. If they didn't, they worked in a grocery store, hardware store, tea shop, and a restaurant. That's just how it was. When Philip got taken. Well, we were shocked because we were in Little Kimberley, like, how can this happen? He would just kind of wander around that area where he was, and he just would always be by himself, and he never, like, heard anybody, and very quiet. People would say hi to him and talk to him, and he'd give maybe one-word answers or nothing at all. When he went missing, like, a group of us walked on either side of the Mark Creek, which goes down the center of Kimberley, so we were walking along the creek on either side, seeing if we could see anything, you know, a piece of a shirt or whatever. Mm-hmm. Did And several people did that, and so it was like quite a few miles that you would walk. And, and then obviously we never found anything. And I was there, and a lot of my friends were, a lot of adults. Yeah, I mean, because we just couldn't believe that this young guy could just disappear. Everybody has different thoughts, what mm. they did at the time, but everybody has a thought. I can right. tell you that, because everybody was involved because it was so shocking.
0: Ten days after Philip went missing, Robin Porter offered a $2,000 reward for any information leading to the return of his son. And then on July 17th, three weeks after Philip was last seen, the Porters received a ransom note in the mail. The envelope had been postmarked at 11.20am the previous day in Cranbrook and the address was typed. The note was typed on cheap paper, all in capital letters without punctuation or sentence breaks, just like a telegram. It was signed, the syndicate. This is a note read by Mark Dunn.
1: Boy alive, Mrs. Mother. Smarten up if you want him back alive. You were told not to call cops. June 26. Dumb play. Follow instructions exactly or you'll never see him again. No one will ever find him. We will send you his wristwatch and some of his clothes. His body will be miles down in the ocean. Think it over. Him or the money. Get $60,000 $20 bills in canvas bag, another 40000 wrapped in brown paper.
0: The note finished by asking Robin Porter to answer the ad in a personal column in the Vancouver Sun. No mention had been made of Philip's watch in any of the media releases or newspaper reports and police felt that the rider may be the kidnapper and have Philip or at least have had him at one time. Robin took out a personal ad in the Vancouver Sun the next day. He asked for the return of the wristwatch and added the required message, we'll do as you say. Robin raised $100,000 and waited for the next note to arrive. It came on July 24th, a week later. This one was also signed, The Syndicate. Here's Mark Dunn.
1: You know damn well we have the watch. When you pay the 60000 bucks, 40000 more, you will have a reunion with Philip. July 26, exactly one month. Kid is getting uneasy. Tried to explain. He doesn't get the message. Follow instructions to the letter. One little slip. You can go home and wonder what happened to him. If you don't come across a couple of pills, he will be out of his misery. We will dump the kid and go on to better things.
0: The note then goes on to tell the porters to leave the money in a shack near Wycliffe and drive on to Vancouver, where they would be contacted with further instructions. Once again, Robin put a note in the Vancouver Sun personals. We'll do as you say, first send watch, birdie. Bertie was a childhood nickname of Robin's, and he used it in the note because he wanted the kidnappers to be absolutely sure that the message was coming from him. On the advice of police, Robin planned to go alone. They believed it was too dangerous for Patricia to go if there really was a criminal syndicate behind the kidnapping. They didn't want her to stay home alone in case she became a second kidnapping victim. That morning an ambulance took her to the hospital and word went out that she was in a state of shock. The money went on ahead to Vancouver in readiness for the transaction. Robin was told to make sure his son was alive before he closed any deal. As instructed and under the surveillance of the Mounties, Robin left home at 9 p.m. on July 25th and drove towards Wycliffe, a town about 14 kilometers southeast of Kimberley. He found a shack near Wycliffe Bridge, went in and searched it, but couldn't find a rock or a note. He decided the next best thing to do was to follow the instructions in the second note and go on to Spokane, Washington, and then to Vancouver. He left a note for police telling them what had happened and where he was going next. After he left, police searched the shack a second time, but they couldn't find a ransom note. Just up the road, though, was an abandoned bus stop shed. They searched it and found the third note. Police removed the note, replaced it with Robin's response, and staked out the shed from a distance. A few hours later, a man drove up in a Chevrolet pickup truck and went inside. They watched him get back in the truck, and then they followed him on the road to Kimberley, where a roadblock was set up and RCMP Staff Sergeant Woodrow Wilson-Thompson and Constable James King were waiting. While Sergeant Thompson couldn't smell liquor on his breath and he didn't look drunk, he felt that he was under the influence. I have some great news for Vancouver listeners. Those of you who live in the Lower Mainland and love jewellery and design will be excited to know that Erin Haken has opened a studio in Vancouver. Erin brings her degree in art history and studies in jewellery making together with her love of antique styling, to create really unique handcrafted pieces. Go to erinhaken.com, that's E-R-I-N-H-A-K-I-N.com, and receive 15% off your order when you use the code COLDCASE. The man in the pickup truck was 52-year-old Earl Kitchener-Bennett. He was born and raised in Kimberley and he'd worked as a welder for Cominco for 34 years. He and his truck were taken to the RCMP detachment. Constable King searched the truck and found another note under the driver's seat. It was typed in the same way as the previous ones and instructed Robin to go along a dirt
1: road for two miles to the top of a hill. Go on this road, approx two miles to top, put bag with 60,000, all notes behind telephone pole at very top of hill. On right. Go dirt road, Cranbrook. Have coffee, Cranbrook Hotel. Leave Spoke ten PM. We will be close behind all the way. Play ball.
0: In the meantime, Robin had driven on to Spokane, a city in Washington State, but no one had contacted him, so he returned to Kimberley the next day. Bennett lived on Creston Road in Townsite a modest house that was in stark contrast to the large house his boss lived in at the top of the hill. On the day Philip went missing, he would have walked right by the Bennett house on his way home. Police searched Bennett's house and found a typewriter in the basement, which they sent to the RCMP forensic lab in Vancouver. It matched the notes. Bennett admitted to writing the notes, but denied having anything to do with Philip's disappearance. He was just taking advantage of the situation to get some money, he said. His references to Vancouver and to the syndicate were an attempt to make police think that it was a larger operation based in the city and not a local behind the kidnapping. He worked alone, he said. This is part of Bennett's testimony, read by Mark Dunn.
1: $11,000 was a big amount to me, and I figured I would never get out of debt. I thought up the idea of pretending that I was the kidnapper after I saw newspaper reports about the missing boy. I helped in the search for the boy, uh, many times around the Cherry Creek area and Wycliffe. I cut out all the clippings so I could get a good note together. I wanted to really make the porters believe I had the kid. And I thought of the watch. All young kids wear wristwatches especially those from families with lots of money. I took a lie detector test four times in the Kembrock Hotel in Kimberley. I thought they'd be satisfied with that, but they asked me to take a truth serum, which I did. I also agreed to be hypnotized, but they said I didn't have to bother.
0: Just to put this into better perspective, $11,000 in 1969 would be worth around $85,000 today. After Bennett's arrest and while he was awaiting trial, the Porters were given a two-hour interview with him at the RCMP detachment in Kimberley. Patricia listened carefully to the way Bennett spoke. She said Bennett had an odd way of pronouncing certain words during the interview, and she noticed that he had the same way of speaking as a voice on the phone. These are Patricia Porter's words read by Megan Dunn.
1: I was sure it was the man within five minutes of being in the same room with him. It was the same timbre of voice, the same slow speech, the same rather kind way of speaking to me. The way he pronounced my husband's name was very unusual. He called him Roe Bin and Mr Porter. He also mentioned Towsend for Thousand.
0: The man who phoned Patricia on the night Philip went missing had demanded that $100,000 be put in canvas bags. Robin wanted to know why Bennett had chosen that amount and Bennett responded that it was a round number. Robin also asked Bennett why he'd wanted the money in canvas bags. Bennett told him, well you wouldn't put this sum of money in a paper bag. Robin upped the reward for information about Philip's whereabouts to $5,000. Tips for sightings of Philip were still coming in, likely encouraged by the reward money. The porters clung to the hope that Philip had escaped from his kidnappers and was in hiding because he was too scared to come home. Porter told reporters that he believed that Philip had been threatened by his kidnappers, that if he went home, his family would be killed, and that was why he wasn't getting in contact with them. Some teenagers in Vancouver tried to exploit the situation and contacted Patricia directly. They told her that Philip was staying with them, but was too scared to come home, and they asked for money so they could take care of him. This is a note that Patricia Porter wrote to them to give to Philip, read by Megan Dunn.
1: If you phone me, you will save your dad $5,000. No one is angry at you at all, darling. We put the $5,000 posters out and the police were only trying to help us find you because the man at home said he would kill you, but the police put him in jail. We understand what made you leave. We miss you and love you very much.
0: More tips came in from across the country and police expanded their search to other cities, including Winnipeg, Thunder Bay, Toronto, Montreal and south of the border, Idaho, Nevada and Washington. By the end of September 1969, they'd investigated more than 4,000 tips and leads, administered polygraph lie detector tests and placed y on suspects' phones. On September 25, 1969, Earl Bennett appeared before a judge and a packed courtroom In Kimberley. He pleaded guilty to extortion. The judge sentenced Bennett to three years at BC Penitentiary. The judge could have sentenced Bennett to the maximum term of 14 years in prison, but he said the lesser sentence was due to the character witnesses provided by the defence and because Bennett had no previous criminal record.
3: Visit evelazarus.com and buy Eve a coffee if you're enjoying Cold Case Canada.
0: Sergeant Fred Bodnaruk moved from Vancouver to Kimberley in 1968 to head up the RCMP detachment. He thought he'd find a quiet life of golfing in summer, skiing in winter and looking into the odd robbery or DUI. Instead, he found a missing persons case that continues to haunt him over 50 years later. While Bennett was serving his time for extortion, Sergeant Bodnaruk was busy searching for a body and putting together a case against him for kidnapping and murder.
3: He goes to jail for two years, and in the meantime was hunting for the kid everywhere. Kimberley was a 100-year-old mining town, and there's deep tunnels, mining shafts, which a lot of the locals believe that if you're going to get rid of anybody, you'll throw them down a mine shaft, and they're 1,100 feet deep, some of them. And we've gone to all those that were around there,
0: In July 1970, Bodnaruk says over a year after Philip had gone missing, they discovered that Bennett's brother Ross had a farm several miles southeast of Kimberley, which Earl used as a getaway. It was also close to Wycliffe, the location of the initial money drop. Bodnaruk says they searched the farm on several different occasions, bringing bulldozers to dig up the ground. On one search, they found stolen welding equipment hidden under the floor of the house. On another, Bodronuk found an empty gasoline barrel and right next to it an impression in the ground where a second gasoline barrel had once stood. He also found the top part of a barrel that had been cut off and part of a quarter-inch steel plate that looked like it had been cut to replace the lid from the missing barrel.
1: He was
3: a professional welder. He was Komenko's best welder. And he had stolen welding equipment on the farm and everything and his farm is 11 kilometers from Moye Lake. So we had divers and various reasons, but there's one place that you could drive at the side. And just if you had a barrel, you just put it down the bank. It was 85 feet straight down hmm. into a lake.
0: Bodnaruk says that on another search, he looked through a pile of manure from the horses that Ross Bennett kept on the farm and found a navy blue toque. As he examined the hat, he found several strands of black hair. Earl Bennett was mostly bald with strands of greyish hair. Philip, though, was known to wear a toque, and he had dark, healthy hair. Bodnaruk had the porter send him two of Philip's hats. He removed the hair found in them and placed it in separate envelopes to send to the RCMP, Crime Detection Laboratory, in Vancouver. There they'd be compared with the hair found on the toque from the manure pile. The search also turned up a partially burnt grey-green blanket about a third of a metre below the surface of a refuse area on the farm. There are a number of stains on it that look like blood. Irene Bennett, Earl's wife, later identified it as looking similar to one that they used for their dog in the car. Sergeant Tony Prokop from the Crime Detection Lab examined 23 skull pairs found in the toque and compared them to the 26 hairs of Phillips that Porter had provided. He also compared Phillips' hairs with two skull hairs found on the scrap of burned blanket and 43 human hairs found among particles of dust, vacuumed from Bennett's former truck, which was recovered from Burns Lake. Prokop said that in his opinion, the hairs from the hat, the blanket and the vacuum particles could have originated from the same source. Different people can have similar hair and hairs on the same head can vary, he said. It was hardly conclusive, and there were still many years to come before DNA would become part of the forensic toolkit. Bennett spent most of his prison sentence at the Agassiz work camp. When he was able to get a temporary pass from jail, he would stay with his wife's brother, Harold Milne, who lived not far away in Chilliwack. In September 1971, Milne drove Bennett to Cranbrook to see his family. He told him on the drive to Cranbrook that Robin Porter had increased the reward money for information about Philip to $5,000. Milne asked Bennett to tell him what he knew of the kidnapping so he could collect the reward and use it to help pay for Bennett's defence lawyer. Bennett said he would think it over, and he also said that he was the only person with all the answers. Milne testified that Bennett seemed quite uncomfortable and that he was worried about something that his wife Irene had said to Sergeant bodnaruk Later, on a trip to his brother's farm, Milne said Bennett told him, you know as much about it as I do. Bennett served 26 months of his three-year sentence. Upon his release from prison on November 9, 1971, he was arrested again and charged with kidnapping. A guilty verdict came with a maximum sentence of life in prison. Bennett's kidnapping trial kicked off in March 1972. Much of it rested on the defence, proving that Bennett could not have kidnapped Philip on that day, nor made the phone call to Patricia Porter at 10.20 that night. There were several friends and family members to back him up. The problem was, his wife Irene, his brother Ross, and a young friend of his daughter's all gave evidence that was different from their original statements. Irene, who'd been married to Earl Bennett for 31 years and had four children with him, originally told Baudrinac that on the day that Philip went missing, she went to bed with a headache in the afternoon and she didn't see her husband until 6 p.m. She had not sent him for groceries, she told Baudrinac. But her story changed at the trial. Bennett, she said, had taken a week's holiday to tile the bathroom. And on July 26th, the day that Philip disappeared, he was up before 8am to start the job. She continued with an extraordinarily detailed account of her husband's movements that day and night. Her new version of events, including sending Bennett into town twice for groceries, having drinks and dinner together, and seeing him off as he left to visit his sister-in-law in in the hospital before meeting his friends at the pub. He got home around 11pm. Irene was woken by police at 7 o'clock the next morning as part of a house-to-house search for Philip Porter. She said she let police in and showed them around the house and through the basement. While her story sounded convincing at first, Irene started to falter under cross-examination. Prosecutor George Murray introduced a letter that she'd written to her brother, Harold Milne, on December 5, nineteen seventy. In the letter, she said her husband was, quote, mean and domineering, and she referred to an incident in which she quoted Bennett as saying, he would have beaten me to death, which I do not doubt. She said she'd been upset when she wrote the letter at the time. She just received an angry letter from her husband and had probably exaggerated. They'd later talk things over, she said, and they were both sorry for what they'd said. The reason her statements varied was because she was upset at the time of the police interview, but since then, her memory had returned. Kelly Davidson, the 18-year-old friend of Bennett's daughter, Karen, was called back to the court by the defence lawyer to say that she'd made a mistake when she said Bennett left the house around 2pm. He'd actually left the house just after 1, she said, and returned between 2 and 230 This now gave Bennett an alibi for the time that Philip was taken, which was thought to be between 2.30 and 3.30, but it's likely that few people would have believed her. When Bennett took the stand, he also gave a minute-by-minute description of the day and night of June twenty-sixth that aligned perfectly with his wife's changed testimony. This showed that he'd had no time to kidnap Philip. He added that on the way back from buying bread the afternoon that Philip disappeared, he'd stopped at the cemetery to take measurements for a headstone he was planning to put up at the grave of his daughter. She died in 1960 at the age of six. After that, he visited the auto wreckers and then arrived home just after 5pm for dinner. There was no way that he could have made the ransom call to Patricia at 10.20pm because at that time he was sitting at a table in the Canadian Hotel in Kimberley, drinking beer with his brother and some friends. He had about six glasses and left the group only once the entire evening to visit the washroom. He said he didn't phone Mrs. Porter that night or at any other time. Ross Bennett had told both Bodnaruck and the Porters on separate occasions that he got back to his Cranbrook home just after 10pm. At trial, he amended this statement to say that he got home around 11 p.m. Stanley Arthur Case, a fellow Kamenko employee who rented the Bennett's basement, was also at the pub that night. He said that the Bennett home was a popular gathering place for teens and that Bennett got along well with the young people, often giving them rides in his car. Bennett's lawyer, Fred Barry, argued that he was just not smart enough to pull off the kidnapping. Over six days, the jury heard testimony from 40 different witnesses. They deliberated for just over three hours. The problem with the prosecution's case was that it was built on circumstantial evidence. There was no body and no proof that Philip had been kidnapped. The jury returned a verdict of not guilty. A visibly relieved Bennett turned to kiss his daughters, Karen and Cheryl. When leaving the courthouse, Bennett stopped Mrs. Porter to shake hands and chat for a moment. While Bennett was acquitted, he remained a person of interest in Philip's disappearance until his own death in 1974. Then, aged 57, Bennett was working as an oil rig welder. He was killed when the Pan-Arctic Oils Limited plane he was in crashed in the Arctic Ocean, 2,500 kilometres north of Edmonton. Retired Sergeant Fred Bodnaruk remains convinced that Bennett was involved in Phillips' kidnapping and murder.
3: So Bennett got hauled up again and was was going to get fired, and so they give him an extension again. And uh, I can see him formulating this plan. So he says, "All right, I'm going to use a Porter kid as a because Porter." a rich guy and he can afford to pay the ransom mm. 100000 oh this is how it unfolds so uh, Bennett lives right near Porter the kid walks by the house every day from school he knows the kid he waylays the kid on a certain day and he figures well I'll take him and hide him on the farm for quite a while because Most people won't suspect me, and in a week or so they'll give a rent and I'll give the kid back. Because Bennett in his own mind, I really believe, was not a murderer. It had to be an accident.
0: In the late 1980s, years after he retired from the RCMP, Bodnaruk helped fund divers from North Vancouver's can-dive construction to take a look around the lake. They couldn't find anything back then, but Bodnaruk figures with all the advances in technology, they could scan the lake bottom and find a gasoline barrel that he believes encases Phillips' remains. Still, he says that it would be like finding the golden needle in a haystack. Bodnaruk tells me that after he was interviewed in 2019 by Global News for the 50th anniversary of Phillips' missing persons case, he was contacted by a woman. She told him that in 1969, her now ex-husband said that he'd killed Philip in a hit-and-run accident. He'd scooped up his body and buried it in the foundations of a new house that was under construction, he said. Bodnarak passed the information along to the Kimberley RCMP. He says he's long out of the loop, though, and hasn't heard whether this lead was ever investigated or cleared. Before you go, I wanted to tell you about a great deal from my publisher, Arsenal Pulp Press. They're offering 20% off to listeners of Cold Case Canada. This includes my new book, Cold Case BC, Cold Case Vancouver, Vancouver Exposed, and Murder by Milkshake. You can also pick up any of Aaron Chapman's fabulous books, including his latest, Vancouver Vice, The Last Gang in Town, and Vancouver After Dark. Just go to arsenalpulp.com and use the promo code ColdCase at checkout. That's one word, ColdCase, and get 20% off these books and other great titles. Thanks so much for listening. If you have any information on Philip Porter's kidnapping, please contact the Kimberley RCMP at 250 427 4811. Or if you'd like to stay anonymous, call Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-8477 or go on to the website, solvecrime.ca. If you'd like more information on this or other cases, please go to my website, evelazarus.com, or join us on the Facebook group page, Cold Case Canada.
3: What was that like? Might just be the most intriguing podcast you'll ever hear. Each episode is a conversation with a regular person who has been through an extremely unusual situation, like Jamie, who discovered a stranger in her bedroom, or Alyssa, whose ex-boyfriend came to her work and set himself on fire, or Ramon, whose wife hired a hitman to kill him, or Ross, who at age 8 survived being shot in the head by his father. Real people telling their story firsthand. Listen and subscribe on any podcast app or at whatwasthatlike.com.